great offers and a great podcast? What a day. Thank you, sponsors. We appreciate it. This is an ICRT podcast. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, our host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined today by Sean Su in Taipei. It's great to be back. And by Donovan Smith in Taichung. And it's great to be here. Tonight, we'll be discussing the latest coronavirus news from here in Taiwan and also the latest news about the November local elections as the KMT has formally nominated one candidate. Well, that's proving a highly contested seat and also proving rather controversial. But we'll begin with events in Orange County, California, hitting home in Taiwan this week after a gunman carried out a deadly attack on members of the Irvine Taiwanese Presbyterian Church. One person was killed and five other people were wounded, including four men aged between 66 and 92 and an 86-year-old woman. They had been attending a luncheon at the church to honour a former pastor who was visiting from Taiwan. Now, there was initially some confusion regarding the suspect's nationality. Initial reports claim that the suspect, one David Joe, was a Chinese immigrant to the United States. Subsequent reports stated that Joe was from China but grew up in Taiwan, and then it was confirmed that he was in fact born in Taiwan in 1953. Law enforcement authorities said said in the immediate aftermath of the shooting that there was a lot of evidence that the suspect had an absolute bias against the Taiwanese people and left notes in his vehicle concerning his hatred of the Taiwanese people. It later transpired that Joe sent a seven-volume diary before the attack to the Chinese-language World Journal's LA Bureau. Now, Joe reportedly spent an hour with attendees at the luncheon before chaining the doors shut and gluing the locks. Now, the Formosan Association of Public Affairs issued a strongly worded statement in response to the attack, saying that it was outraged at violence targeting the Taiwanese-American community for their identity, and it condemns hate crime and domestic terrorism of radicalized groups. While Pastor Billy Jung, who helped to subdue the gunman, says the shooting appeared to have been planned years in advance, possibly from about two years ago. Meanwhile, here in Taiwan, President Tsai Ing-wen condemned all forms of violence and expressed her condolences to the family of the Taiwanese-American physician who was killed in the shooting. Now, according to the presidential office, Tsai has also asked Taiwan's top envoy in the United States, Xiaobi Kim, to visit California soon to extend the government's willingness to offer assistance to the families of the victims. Now, later this week, it transpired that the suspect, David Joe, used to teach at the National Pingdong University of Science and Technology. The university confirmed that, saying that he was hired as a lecturer in the Department of Applied Science of Living in August of 1994, but his one-year contract was not renewed after it expired. Then there was a report that he was a member of a pro-unification party in Las Vegas called the Las Vegas National Association for China's Peaceful Unification. However, the association was quick to tell the Beijing-based China Review News Agency that although Joe did attend the association's founding ceremony in April of 2019, after they talked to him, they found him rather too radical for them. And the Presbyterian Church in Taiwan on Wednesday called on the government here to investigate links between the suspect and pro-China groups both here in Taiwan and in the United States. So, Sean, obviously, sad news, but you've had dealings with this Chinese um, unification group in America. 
Uh, yeah, I used to be uh, one of the youngest board members of the Taiwanese American Association in New York City. And uh, the Taiwan centers there would routinely get harassed uh, by uh, Chinese ultra-nationalist and ethno-nationalist radicals. Uh, they would often call or when we'd run events like the Immigrants Day Parade and what have you, uh, they would attempt to just try to be as bothersome as they could, um, although it did not escalate to violence in the past. However, sometimes the calls would be rather threatening, uh, especially in particular if a Taiwan center uh, uh, you know, might have hosted, let's say, a Falun Gong speaker or a human rights speaker. Uh, they may call especially for those kind of things. So I don't think it is um, particularly... Uh, aberrant that Taiwanese Americans might be, might be harassed. Uh, we've had long histories where, let's say, uh, you know, a pageant may be run, or for instance, uh, a protest may be had outside, and maybe, um, you know, maybe if Taiwanese Americans would be talking to reporters or whatever, and sometimes uh, Chinese activists would run over with their flags, giant flags, and try to cover up uh, the in, or disrupt the interviews. Uh, these incidents have gone on for quite a while. But, you know, escalating to shooting, that's something a little bit more new. And of course, Donovan, there was confusion about the nationality of the shooter in the hours after it took place. Yeah. And that um, that was something that really struck me very quickly is I, I saw the reports coming in. And my first response, of course, was shock and horror. And but they. They, they were referring to somebody who was they, that AP was calling a Chinese immigrant. And I, I, I immediately knew that, no, this guy was from Taiwan because the, the fact of the matter is this, a Chinese nationalist from China wouldn't attack a Presbyterian church. They wouldn't understand the subtlety. They wouldn't understand the importance of the Presbyterian Church here within the pro-democracy movement, the anti-martial law movement, and the Taiwan independence movement. They would have attacked a, a target that represents the Taiwan government, for, for example, maybe one of the trade offices. This person, it was, it, it, I immediately knew because of the choice of the target that this was somebody who was originally born or had a strong connection to Taiwan. There was no way that that couldn't be the case. And then, of course, later it did come out that he was indeed, as the local press put it, a quote-unquote second-generation mainlander, which I, I put in quotes because, of course, most people whose families came from China obviously are not like this guy. And uh, every you know the vast majority of the public, the public here did eventually at some point in their history, come from China. So using the term mainlander is a little bit iffy, but uh, he is a second generation of those families who came over in the late 40s and apparently really took that ideology that was brought over very, very seriously. And he took it to an extreme. Now, there is a subset. I think uh, Sean can talk about a lot more about this, but of this ideology that goes beyond what you normally see. Um, and a lot of them actually did emigrate from Taiwan to the United States. So there's a, a subset of the Taiwanese American community or the Republic of China community in, in the United States that, that is uh, from people who, who emigrated from China to Taiwan and then went on to the United States. 
but he falls into a kind of a extreme wing of that group of people. I like Guo Guaning, if you remember him. He was the Taiwanese diplomat in who was found to have been going on to online groups and disparaging ethnic Taiwanese or culturally Taiwanese and saying horrible things about them. And then he was finally dismissed uh, as a diplomat. He was apparently he was representing Taiwan in Toronto at the time. But there he his buddies managed to get him a job in spite of having been fired with the Taiwan provincial government just before he retired so that he would be able to claim retirement benefits. And so there are people within government and within society that shelter this kind of ideology and these kinds of people. Uh, but I, I think we need to be absolutely clear and absolutely uh, make this absolutely clear absolutely, you know, without any ambiguity, that this is an extreme and unusual tiny minority of people. Uh, yeah, definitely it is. But uh, something I need to point out, uh, two, two, two things I need to really point out. The first thing is that uh, I want to mention that this Presbyterian church was, at least there's no evidence at all that this Presbyterian church was particularly special among Taiwanese American groups, as in the churchgoers and the participants did absolutely nothing to really make them a real target other than holding very commonly held beliefs by many people in the you know, in that lean pan green. And that is, um, you know, like, uh, 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 you know, like uh, many Taiwan centers and the vast, actually almost all the Taiwan centers and basically all, almost all the Taiwanese Presbyterian churches in America hold the same leanings where they support a democratization movement where they tend to lean pan green in politics. So um, just the other day, uh, one of the Orange County deputy sheriffs uh, said that, you know, he could have targeted, it seems evidence seems to show so far that they, he could have targeted any Taiwanese Americans or many of them who tend to have pan green leanings, which is a lot of them, especially in America, uh, because um, a lot of these people, uh, a lot of, especially in these churches and in this church as well, um, and these Taiwan centers tend to be people who have been blacklisted uh, in, during the white terror period in the past. So obviously, uh, their political leanings tend not to be very pro KMT. Now, this guy is a bit of a radical, but I am a little bit skeptical um, of, of the Las Vegas National Association for Peaceful China's Peaceful Unification Group saying that this guy was too extreme for them. I That's what they said. I don't really agree with them. The reason is because um, the National Association for China's Peaceful Unification is the larger umbrella of these groups. And that in 2020 was found and declared a foreign mission by the U.S. government and also under the auspices of the China's United Front Work Department, which, you know, is the CCP's, you know, um, propaganda and misinformation uh, outlet. Now, the NACPU, NACPU, or however you want to call them, um, traditionally has written some rather radical messages in the past. They have encouraged, and they do have members that are very radical. Um, and these these members and, and people who support these have often wrote on Twitter and social media very disgusting things. Things I've seen, uh, uh, messages such as, like, you know, uh, you know, keep the island, as in Taiwan Island, but not the people, you know, as in 
just kill or get rid of all the people, basically calling for genocide. They These are not irregular. Um, in 2020, a bunch of uh, uh, early 2020, it was early 2019, I'm not sure which date, but uh, the there was a video uh, involving a lot of Chinese think tanks. And these think tanks were prominent ones. And they also featured some radical, uh, again, Chinese unification promotion groups uh, uh, from that were Taiwanese that sh- had a meeting in China. And the two hour, almost two hour video, um, they even said things like, you know, Taiwan, China should take Taiwan. They, you know, we should do this attack as soon as possible. Uh, and then came the subject about what to do about the Taiwanese people. And they said, well, for those that, you know, truly believe in the, uh, uh, the glory of China and so on and so forth, then they can be spared. But for the, for the ones that you know uh, have independence or separatist leanings, we must find a final solution, and that will take care of them all. Which you know, if you that's horrible language, um, but it's quite common in China. You go to Tieba uh, or other Chinese platforms, you'll see lots of language where they talk about regularly talk about the killings or rape of Taiwanese people. And even the Great Translation Movement pointed out that even after uh, so the, the Chinese government filtered messages through forums, that um, there was very little sympathy for Taiwanese people in the shootings uh, uh, among Chinese netizens. So this is, and that's after they deleted more of the radical, you know, haha, you know, Taiwanese deserved it kind of language. So I don't, you know, in some ways, like, yes, this guy's a radical for actually preparing bombs and trying to shoot people. I don't, I don't like to mention his name, but um, this person, I mean, yes, I too also felt that he was probably Chinese, uh, uh, I mean, Taiwanese American because of the spelling of his name. It wasn't in the traditional pinyin, it was more Wade's Giles. But um, in terms of the behavior, though, uh, the radicalism is a large part of it, started by Nakpu. It's definitely started, it's uh, tolerated and promoted by the CCP. You know, in seeing uh, Taiwan independent supporters and Pan Green supporters as less than human. That is the ultimate result of their language. We've all seen Hu Shijin on Twitter call for the assassination of our, of our, uh, 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 our, the heads of our government. So this is the kind of language they've been promoting all this time. So we'll, when a radical comes by, of course, they will try to distance themselves from it. Do I think they themselves directed this man to shoot people? No. But did they help? Did they result? Did they provide the news articles and materials that made him radicalized? Absolutely. There's no denying that. And Donovan, what about the Presbyterian Church in Taiwan, basically warning about the dangers posed by Chinese proxies and agitators here in Taiwan, and also calling on the government to clamp down on such groups? I mean, what could the government do? Uh, That's a good question, and it's a very difficult one to answer because a lot of the ideology ties in uh, directly with the official stance of the KMT. So when it comes to ideology related to one China or the greater Chinese nation, the greater Chinese people, there, there's a iffy – it's very hard to differentiate between someone who is who, – who just genuinely believes that, that Taiwan is part of the greater Chinese people, part of the, the, the glory of the Chinese nation and these kinds of things. And and where does that line end 
And where does foreign Chinese influence begin? Sometimes you can actually trace uh, foreign influence from China, meaning they've come in and they are funding TikTokers and YouTubers and, and these people. And you can uh, see where where the money you know where the money's coming from and where the you know where they are actually actively getting involved. But there are there is a fairly small, I mean, you know, less than one percent of the population, but homegrown movement that is actually ideologically predisposed to this as well. So the government can keep an eye on a lot of this stuff. It can crack down on elements that are being paid from China, but uh, there is that tricky gray area where it's it's actually homegrown. So you know there there's always going to be a risk uh, as long as some free speech is kept that that there is going to be a potentially homegrown element. Now saying that, it's worth noting that the vast majority, I think, of where this is coming from are people who are outright paid by China, people who are essentially their proxies and that are actively seeking the approval or the financial support of elements from within China. Those are the most active ones. But again, some of them are just simply, for example, fans of Hanguoyu, as this guy was, and are not receiving any money. Uh, they're just simply, they've just simply been radicalized both from within and without Taiwan. And Sean, of course, Donovan there talked about on the people on the internet, social media, spreading hatred and towards Taiwan, spreading Beijing's propaganda. And of course, the National Security Bureau Director General this week, Chen Ming Tong, warned that basically, well, even local Taiwanese internet celebrities are being paid by the Chinese government to conduct what he called cognitive warfare campaigns here in Taiwan on the YouTube and TikTok and platforms like this. Yeah, and that's actually a really big concern because, as Donovan said, there's sort of like a gray area. I mean, at which point is it someone's freedom of speech? And at which point can you easily prove that these these YouTubers who are often paid via proxies or multiple proxies under proxies under proxies to trace all that finance and going back to it? That's going to be very difficult. That said, do I think if a YouTuber is found under, you know, to, to, to have taken, uh, uh, let's say, United Front Work Department money, uh, should they get into trouble? Uh, well, we come into some legal definitions, and this is where the law needs to be updated. The reason is because, um, you know, it's illegal in Taiwan to, let's say, for China to start a broadcasting station uh, to broadcast on uh, uh, through the airwaves um, a, a Chinese news or information channel. Right. So an issue is how uh, and, and the majority of the ownership can has to be like a, a, uh, a Taiwanese company and so forth and so on. So therefore, um, YouTubers seem to be a quite a sidestep move. You know, uh, lots of people might think of Zhongtian, which is infamous or famous for having very uh, pro-China views and uh, potentially uh, funding that may or may not come from China. They just simply moved online. And in Taiwan, a lot of people view their news and their information 
through YouTube. Uh, I've been, you know, anyone who takes a taxi quite often will see, um, you know, uh, a mounted either a tablet or a phone uh, on the dashboard of a taxi driver and they'll be streaming the news. Uh, most of the major stations all stream, you know, live or pre-recorded on YouTube. So that's become one of the most preferred ways. And I don't think Taiwan's legislation covers enough that sort of thing. And what's the difference between Zongtian streaming on YouTube and taking funding maybe put from China versus, uh, say, a YouTuber who may be taking funding from China. It's going to be an extreme challenge. Uh, I do know that the United States and Taiwan has worked together to find ways to uh, fight disinformation. And this is going to be one of those places where we're, we're going to have to see how they come up with ways to deal with this. That said, do I think a YouTuber uh, who takes money from China, uh, should they be allowed to stream? Well, that's difficult. Their audience is the whole world once they're on that platform. So how do you actually manage that? And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and looking at this week's coronavirus news from here in Taiwan, where Health Minister Chen Shih-jong on Wednesday told reporters that the coronavirus infections here in Taiwan will likely peak in the next seven days. That statement came as domestic infection cases numbers hit a new single-day high of 85,310 that same day. Now, on Thursday, the Ministry of Health said the current domestic coronavirus outbreak has now entered what it called a mass community spread stage. And the number of infections is likely to peak in late May. Citing figures, the ministry said 475,497 new coronavirus infections were reported from between May the 12th and 18th, marking a significant increase from the 302,597 cases recorded from between May the 5th and the 11th. And health officials say the rising case numbers indicate that Taiwan has entered at the mass community spread stage of the disease. And while imported cases have dropped over the past week, they remain a risk. Also, the health minister this week warned or said, announced anyway, that the outward trend will continue because new daily cases in central and southern Taiwan have been rising in line with what's been happening in the north for several weeks. And he said that more PCR tests are now being taken in the centre and south. Now, one of my guests today, Sean, you recently caught a dose of the coronavirus and had to go through the rigmarole in Taipei of dealing with these PCR testings. Yes, that's right. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I shouldn't chuckle at it. I'm actually just chuckling because uh, it wasn't quite pleasant for me. Um, but basically, yes, uh, uh, the week before the last I, I caught corona, uh, the virus and um, I had to self-quarantine and do the whole sort of thing. Uh, I do know a lot of people are complaining about getting the tests, uh, the anti body tests, the rapid antibody tests. Unfortunately for me, um, what I did was I found a pharmacy that was located in an alley and I was able to get uh, five tests without you know, waiting too long. And that was the very first day they started distribution. Um, my experience was rather mixed. It was mostly good. I got like a very nice um, you know, uh, a package from the, 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 uh, the government. I do know that me, it wasn't just me though, me and a lot of my friends all got, uh, in Taipei, all got COVID around the same time. But I haven't met them. We just independently all got it and we compared notes. Uh, our packages were a little bit different that we got from the government. I notably did not get a thermometer. 
but it seems everyone else did. Um, and that's okay. But one of the things that a lot of people are complaining about was the PCR test sites. Uh, I did not get to line up. I was late. I was informed by the government a little bit late on that I should go get my PCR test. And uh, after I tested positive in the rapid uh, uh, home rapid kits, I arrived at 5.30. I paid for the emergency room. There wasn't many people uh, uh, lining up through the emergency entrance. So they had me wait for a couple minutes. They swabbed me, did the whole thing, told me to go home, gave me a lot of meds, got home a couple hours later, didn't even need to wait a day. Uh, they told me that I was positive and I should go into quarantine. And I was already in self-quarantine uh, anyway, so I went into quarantine. And that was mostly smooth. What didn't come out smooth was um, the I I'm registered in Kaohsiung but I live in Taipei. My household registration is in Kaohsiung. And they kept calling my partner. They didn't call me. They could repeatedly would not fix that, even though they said they would. So Kaohsiung was the one that repeatedly contacted me, texted texted my partner, called my partner, who would then have to, you know, inform me. <laughs> even though, uh, yeah. So that was sort of one thing that they could have improved. Uh, another thing I noticed is that Taipei only at the time had about 11 PCR test centers. Uh, Kaohsiung had 20, like 25 or 20 something. New Taipei had 35. So I do know that there was a lot of concern about the PCR test centers because you had to either ride, they would tell you, you get to ride your own scooter, drive your own car, walk there, or take U-bike. So folks out there, if you're listening, please definitely use alcohol and wipe down on your U-bikes from now on because you don't know how many people are going to PCR test centers with that. And... You know, I guess Taipei just had too few of a number in the beginning. So there was definitely a lot of gripes on that front, uh, whereas other cities definitely had way more PCR test centers. And that's something that I think Taipei did improve upon later on. But when you're looking at population ratios and what have you, I feel that Taipei's still lagging behind a bit. Uh, yeah, well, uh, I, um, I, I was really glad that uh, Sean is doing well. I, I remember uh, when he got it and... Uh, was very concerned the but so far um it sounds like sean's doing okay and that that's the important thing now here in taichung uh as far as the rapid testing they they have the the drive the the, the so-called drive-through testing centers which are not actually drive-throughs they borrowed the name drive-through to suggest speediness uh, and <laughs> convenience um, when you actually are not driving through. Um, and uh, in Zhanghua, they have the Golden Thoroughfare is about the only way I can translate it um, as far as the PCR testing. Now, if you remember the, our report here on ICRT on Wednesday morning, uh, I talked about how the health bureau here predicted that this week uh, at around Wednesday or so that we would hit 10,000 uh, new cases daily. And if you looked at the progression of every week up to that, you know, for the last few weeks where the daily cases have been tripling, it suddenly dropped to only about 1.3, 1.4 uh, times the week before it, it dropped off markedly and so the the government was expecting 10,000 cases a day but we only went from 3300 to 4700 
uh, during that time period. But checking today, we've suddenly spiked up to 7,444 as of yesterday. So we are going to hit that 10,000 mark, I think, uh, you know, within a few days, it looks like. Um, and uh, we're going to start catching up to Taipei and New Taipei. And uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, we're like in so many things, we're going to follow Tianlongguo and we're going to, you know, the <laughs> celestial kingdom up there in Taipei. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, we're always a little slow down here in Taichung, and I'm hoping that we'll continue to be. Uh, but I don't think that's going to happen. So I think um, and I've seen what the government's talking about is that they expect actually cases in Taipei and New Taipei, Taoyuan uh, up there to it, it may have already peaked the daily number of cases or will soon. But we're going to start playing catch up here in the center and in the south. And Sean, what about the government? I mean, the government's saying Taiwan is now on the road to living with the virus and the government is gradually easing stricter prevention measures, or it will soon, and also continuing to give consideration to risk control and maintaining public health capacity. Well, I mean, they are monitoring the hospital uh, uh, beds, their availability and so forth, and it seems to be relatively plateauing, you know. Uh, we're not in a situation where all the beds are completely taken, hospitals are overrun uh, in that, so it's rather calm. And I think this is uh, the difference between us and Hong Kong or some other places is that uh, people are still masked up. Uh, people are still um, social distancing a bit more. Uh, you know, when I dropped by some malls to pick up some needed equipment and so forth, I did notice that there was a lot less patrons than normal. Uh, so in, in a sense, in that way, the culture in Taiwan has been uh, fruitful in that measure. And uh, the vaccinations, of course, are relatively high. Taiwan vaccinations are even higher than the United States even. So the main concern right now in my book is the elderly. A lot of the elderly um, they, in Taiwan have the lowest vaccination rates. And even if they do, uh, those that are dying from it, the vast majority that have died from it, uh, the majority were not vaccinated. The other half were not fully vaccinated or not recently boosted, or they only had one shot, but that was like a year ago, things like that. So, you know, it is very tragic. We saw this coming. Uh, I do think um, if they can get vaccinated, to please do so as soon as possible. Um, you know, the government has tried everything to try to uh, have that category get vaccinated. So that is the big regret. But otherwise, because many of the much of the population is vaccinated, it's relatively mild. Now that said, I'm talking about myself here. Uh, my throat itched for about 10 days. And it was perhaps really annoying. I was going nuts after a while. It was like a scratch you couldn't scratch, you, a niche you couldn't scratch. That said, uh, other people I've known, you know, got through it relatively quickly and had no issues. Um, I did get sore muscles and so forth. So, you know, I, I guess it's my but, you know, compared to a flu or whatever, I would say I felt it hit hard, at least in my case, harder. But, for, you know, because I was vaccinated, I'm okay. Many other people are as well. Um, so, yeah, we are living with it. And But, you know, so far in Taiwan, everything seems to be relatively normal. Um, there's some school closures. We know about that. Like Taipei, I think Taipei American School or Taipei European School or some of these others uh, are switching to online. And uh, a lot of teachers I've spoken to call it like Schrodinger's class. Uh, 
You never know until the next two days. <laughs> so this resulted in lots of teachers in Taiwan having to create two curriculums, one for the internet and one designed for in-class. And, you know, hopefully as measures loosen up, that will also come to pass and you know but we're adjusting Taiwan we mentioned in a in a couple of the last time I was here we mentioned that Taiwan is a door Taiwan opens doors really slowly right so we're easing and transitioning I think that's another thing that we're doing right because we're sort of easing things we're not overflowing those hospitals we're not having utter chaos inconvenience is a different story in my book than chaos right having to wait an hour to get your antigen uh, home test is an inconvenience. Uh, I only 20 minutes, I was lucky, but I heard people had to wait an hour. That's an inconvenience. But, you know, that's a very stark contrast to hospitals completely overflowed and nobody able to get proper treatment. I heard there might have been a case or two, but nothing that was widely rampant. And moving on to political news now, and the KMT this week began to gradually iron out its candidate list for some of the top jobs up for grabs in November's local elections. And it's already proving somewhat controversial, with Chair Eric Ju on Wednesday announcing that former Premier Simon Jung has been nominated as the KMT's candidate for the Taoyuan mayoral election. And speaking after a closed-door meeting of the party's central standing committee, Ju explained that the decision to choose Jung was made based on who can bring changes to the city rather than who is interested in running. Now, speculation erupted after that statement was made that Ju was referring to former Taipei City Councillor Lord Jia Chung, who launched his own campaign to represent the KMT in Taoyuan early last month. Now, Law was not a happy bunny when he heard that he'd been passed over for the post, and he said that he was shocked and stunned by the decision, and he went on to say that it was his supporters, rather than himself, who he felt most sorry for. Now, the DPP has yet to announce its candidate for the Taoyuan UN mayoral race. But in Taipei, the KMT chairman also said that, well, they're just about ready to basically nominate lawmaker Zhang Wen-an as their candidate for the Taipei mayoral election. Now, Zhang is currently under home quarantine and self-health management after testing positive for the coronavirus, and he's now expected to accept the candidacy next Wednesday during a meeting of the party's central standing committee. Zhang will be the first candidate, of course, to have been named for Taipei's top job, but there's speculation in the DPP that it could nominate Health Minister Chen Shijong as its candidate, and there's also chatter that current Taipei Deputy Mayor Vivian Huang could run as an independent or third-party candidate in the capital. So, Donovan, let's look at Tao Yuan, Lord Chang, not a happy bunny. <laughs> no, he's definitely not a happy bunny. Uh, even more unhappy than him is uh, Liu Yiling. Uh, the, the two main candidates that have been vying for the post, uh, Liu Yiling has been, uh, she had got a 400 and some odd uh, Li Zhangs, the bureau, the, bur the borough chiefs uh, of over 500 total. Uh, and uh, the majority of the KMT uh, city councilors, they'd all come uh, forward to support her. And she'd been rallying the forces of the uh, the KMT uh, the uh, on the KMT side of those who supported having a local candidate, somebody native to Taoyuan. And on the other hand, you had Lord Zhichang, the unhappy bunny, as you refer to him. Um, he, the Taipei city councilor, he's an ex- uh, Ma administration spokesperson and a somebody who is very ambitious and very good at getting press coverage. Now, 
he set his sights originally on running for Taipei mayor, but when it became clear that uh, uh, Jiang Wanan, uh, Johnny Jiang was going to, uh, sorry, um, Wayne Jiang was going to uh, have that pretty much locked up, he then switched his sights to Taoyuan. Eric Ju, of course, the KMT chair, had his famous phone call with him where he reportedly said that he absolutely won't choose him. It doesn't matter what his poll numbers are, and I'll fight you to the death, he reportedly told uh, Law in the phone call uh, before he get before he would let him be nominated. So the, the whole Taoyuan race was already very, very bitter and divisive. And Law, in spite of being told publicly by the secretary general of the party and by privately being told that he would be fought to the death before he would be nominated uh, by the party chair, it, it kept going anyway. And in spite of there being a lot of opposition from local local candidates in Taoyuan, he, he quit his post as a Taipei city councilor, bought property in Taoyuan, and changed his registration. And he was uh, very publicly essentially challenging uh, Eric Jew's uh, power within the party by simply saying, I'm not giving up no matter what you say. <laughs> so then, out of the blue, one day after the Pan Blue media had been going on about how there, a KMT financier uh, had greenlit and uh, a and was proceeding with a Hangguoyu candidacy for the Taoyuan mayorship. All of a sudden, the Central Standing Committee, uh, Central Standing Committee of the KMT, Eric Chu, dropped this bomb that Simon Zhang has not only just joined the party; he is now the candidate. And so the nativist faction uh, with Liu and uh, some of the other candidates, they all freaked out. And Luo Zhiqiang, you know, coming in from Taipei, he also freaked out. Now, Liu for herself has said that she absolutely cannot accept this result and is considering running on her own uh, as a candidate. Luo in the past has previously said that he has thought about leaving the KMT and he has put every, he's gone in all in on this race. So it's possible that the KMT may have two splinter candidates who may leave the party unless Eric Ju can bring this all under control. Now, as far as Simon Zhang, though, inside the party, there's been a revolt uh, people calling for Eric Jew to resign yet again, considering he's had he came in as the with only 40 some odd percent of the members supporting him in a three way race. So he won a plurality. He didn't actually win a majority when he came in. He's come in. He's dictating to the party as if he is a strong KMT chair, but the party's not treating him that way. And so uh, once again, after a series of uh, election losses, he, there was calls for him to resign. Again, there have been a whole bunch of calls for him to resign, and he's not doing it. Um, so he's already challenged. He's in trouble. But as far as the candidate himself, Simon Jung, 
nobody's directing any ire against him. He was an independent who was a lame duck premier under uh, Ma Ying-jeou when he uh, when uh, Tsai Ing-wen was elected president and before her inauguration, there was that lame duck period. Simon Zhang was an administrator. He held various posts in the Ma administration and then uh, became the premier uh, during that period. He was also uh, Han Guoyu's vice president, vice presidential nominee. Uh, during that campaign, and he was brought in again as kind of a technocrat, uh, a practical kind of guy. He has a tech background. He worked for Acer and Google. He lived in Taoyuan for quite a while, apparently. And so nobody's actually said anything bad about him. The the attacks are against Eric Jew and how he went about this nomination. Uh, Simon Zhang has now joined the KMT finally. Uh, apparently as of a couple days ago, and he actually may be a decent candidate because the KMT is pretty strong in Taoyuan. And, you know, he's a technocrat with experience, lived in Taoyuan for quite a while. So uh, while the local politicians who were involved in the controversies previously are all furious, uh, whether they supported law coming in from Taipei or the nativist uh, bunch uh, behind Liu and others, uh, they are their anger isn't against Simon Zhang. It's against Eric Jew for how he dropped this bomb on them. Because and and Eric Jew, by the way, is a previous uh, Taoyuan County Commissioner, and so everybody was completely caught flat-footed by this. And so there's a lot of anger uh, against him. But the candidate he chose might be a decent one, all things considered. And Sean, I mean, do you think this opting for Simon Jung and Taoyuan could lead to problems down the road when the KMT has to pick other candidates for November's election? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, I just want to say a little bit about Simon. It's just last year. I mean, he has a huge history uh, being involved in, you know, with Google, with, uh, I think, Acer, all these other tech companies. But one thing that uh, I need to mention was last year that he did eat some criticism because he had said that one of the things Taiwan should do is go to China to, to you know, uh, move our tech, more technology and factories and learn from China, but also move our uh, uh, silicon shield to China. China, which in hindsight in 2022, especially after the Ukraine invasion and what have you, uh, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine doesn't look too smart. Uh, I understand if you're from a, a technology standpoint, you might want to have that. So that might be, I, I heard some, I heard, I've heard and seen some criticism online on that one, but it might become louder and he may have to face that as a future hurdle, uh, <laughs> you know, because I don't think too many Taiwanese are very keen on this very this idea that said for the kmt choosing their own this is similar things have happened before uh we've seen things like in hualien where the kmt had their own candidate and then fu Quanchi had his own and then han Yi popped in and just said okay we're gonna choose this guy and the kmt basically said that over their own candidate uh, for hualien uh so so that's something that might uh happen again this this is i i you know the kmt will do that uh, uh so it, will that result in them will that cause them problems down the line well it is right now i mean there's controversy but as donovan said uh so far eric seems to be eating most of the the criticism and so that's actually good for simon because there's less spotlight for him so uh we'll see how it plays out later i guess
And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today by Sean Su in Taipei. Yeah, it was great to be back. And by Donovan Smith in Taichung. And it's great to be here. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favorite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.